Welcome, welcome, listeners, and happy Thanksgiving to you. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson. We hope you are having or have had a very blessed Thanksgiving and had a chance to spend it with family, etc. And we hope you have a chance to spend a few moments with The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. And we've got a good one today. In some ways, I feel like the book is great for Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving may have become what over the last five or six years? Maybe your Thanksgiving table has become a little bit more fraught. Maybe you're fighting with your Democratic uncle or your fiercely Republican aunt and the table has become more and more divided. Well, this is a great book. This is a great week to be discussing our book, Mr. Texas by Lawrence Wright, which is in some ways about how people on the political spectrum talk to one another. So we will help you survive your Uncle Bernie or your Aunt Bernie. So stick with us. Well, this book, first of all, Lawrence Wright is a keen observer of the state of Texas, really in the tradition, I think, of Larry McMurtry and Molly Ivins, who wrote so wonderfully about Texas. And Mr. Texas is about Texas politics with all its absurdities and with all its import. It is important what happens in Texas, as Larry Wright will tell you, because Texas is growing so markedly. Mm. It is now the second most populous state in the country. And so much happens in Texas that begins to have national implications. And yet Texas is a raucous political state. It has a rich tradition, a little bit idiosyncratic. I think Texas is sort of a one-off state, or at least people think of it that way as just being totally idiosyncratic. But that's as Texas grows, it's becoming more and more like the rest of the country. It feels like Texas and California are really starting to shape this nascent politics because they are so populous, because what happens there affects so much of what goes on in the country. And Texas is interesting in some ways because I feel like it often is judged for the most idiosyncratic parts of the state. When you think of Texas or when I think of Texas, I often think of big hats and big boots and, you know, your Ted Cruz. I don't necessarily think of the young urban populist centers that Lawrence Wright talks about being so important to shaping the state's politics. In a way, I think I probably let the loudest elements of state politics in Texas speak to the way I feel about Texas in general, which is probably doing Texas a disservice. But we shouldn't in any way say this is a political novel solely. It is, Mm -mm. but Mm -mm. it is very funny. And he parodies Texas politics, which in some ways is a parody of itself. And that's tough to do. How do you parody something that is already seen, as you say, idiosyncratic? How do you point out the flaws of something that you so clearly love? Yes. He clearly has a deep abiding love of Texas, but is very honest about its flaws and has very wide open eyes when he's looking at it. This is not yay Texas. It's not anti-Texas. It's a very honest look at Texas politics. But he looks at Texas politics, as you say, pointing out all of its faults, but obviously expressing a state that he loves. And we should give you a little bit of the plot. It's a story about Sonny Lamb, who is a naive rancher in Texas who has essentially failed at everything he's done. But through a sort of fluke, he becomes famous and a lobbyist in Texas thinking that if he can get Sonny into the legislature, can control his vote. And as he says, he has good looks, he has good teeth, and he's naive, says this lobbyist. And so he approaches uh, Sonny Lamb to run for the legislature. And Sonny is willing to do it, thinking 
because he's failed at so many things that maybe this will save his marriage, which is a bit on the rocks. There are wonderful characters with very, very colorful lines, some of which are even repeatable in the podcast. <laughs> but but in some ways, I think it's also about can you get into politics without selling even a little bit of your soul? Can you emerge from the life politic and still be the whole person that you came in with? But also, I think this novel is a beautiful book about how we talk to each other in a time where, as Lawrence writes so beautifully, and this is a line that really stays with me, it's getting harder to hate the belief and not the believer. And that seems to be such a descriptor of our modern politics. Now, you're the movie buff of the two of us, the real movie yes. buff. Yes. As you read this, did you think, boy, this is just made to be a movie? I did in a sort of the distinguished gentleman, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Texas. But I think Texas always makes a great movie. Like That's it true. does, you That's know, true. there's just something larger than life about it. I think it's really fascinating that Texas doesn't want to be California and California doesn't want to be Texas. And Lawrence Wright really writes about how they they really think of themselves as opposing viewpoints. But in some ways, they're very similar. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Texas, the book, it is downright funny. It's also at times deadpan funny. And it also, while it depicts the absurdity of Texas politics, also is accurate in talking about the importance of Texas politics. Larry Wright is a good talker as well as a great writer. And we had a chance to talk to him. Here's our conversation. Lawrence Wright, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. We've had a few writers on who have vacillated equally between fiction and nonfiction. You may be the first author we've had on that have written nonfiction and fiction about the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it about Texas that calls you to write both fiction and nonfiction? And are you ever going to be done being fascinated with Texas? Oh, gosh. Well, I thought I was done. <laughs> I, I worked for Texas Monthly for years. And then when I left that magazine, I decided I was never going to write about Texas again. I had it up to here. <laughs> and I, I and I didn't want to be a regional writer, you know, that, that a term of, you know, despair. And I wanted to comment on our national and international problems and so on. And then... Uh, at some point, my editor at the New Yorker, David Remnick, asked me to explain Texas because neither <laughs> he nor anyone that works in that magazine can understand why I live here. And honestly, Kate, I've wondered about it myself. You know, what is it that kept me here after I had left the state vowing that I was not ever going to return and then I wasn't ever going to write again? And, and, and it turned out neither of those promises ever was fulfilled because something called me home. You know, I thought I wanted to write about really important subjects, but when I, I read this statistic some years ago that by the year 2050, Texas will be about the size of California and New York combined. Now, it's already a very important state, but it will be the determining dominant state in, in just not that long, you know, from now. While California and New York are shrinking, you know, by the 2050, everything important in America will be decided in Texas. So I suddenly realized that what was important to write about was where I am. I had a sense of urgency. And that's so I started by writing God Save Texas, a nonfiction account. But there was <laughs> what was left over was a lot of the color and the characters and the history that I had grown so fond of, despite my disenchantment with so much of the state. I had so much I wanted to say. So, you know, I found my way into this novel and it's, it's been a lot of fun for me. Larry, I'm probably one of those Americans who has a sort of cliche version of Texas. 
But I do think of it as idiosyncratic. And yet when you say by 2050, it's going to have a population equal to California and New York, I wonder, is that going to change Texas in any way? Will it be unique or will it be more of a melting pot? Well, Charlie, it's an interesting question. I, you know, there was a widespread assumption, you know, especially during the pandemic, when the number of Californians coming into Texas was just at an unbelievable level. One out of three immigrants to Texas is from California. And I thought, well, they're going to make the state blue. But that's not exactly the case. A lot of the migrants from California are more libertarian in their outlook. They don't fit comfortably in the red or blue boxes. Many of them come here with a lot of money and they're tax refugees. So they, the idea of small government is built into the very fact that they came here in the first place. It's not clear to me when the change will come. But, Charlie, I will tell you this. Demography is destiny. All the cities in Texas are blue, even Fort Worth, which was a big surprise when that happened. And the state is already a majority minority. And there are as many or more Hispanics than there are Anglos in the state. And I hope, you know, writing the novel was my attempt to nudge the state towards a more pragmatic and compassionate future. But it's hard to tell when that'll happen. But I think inevitably it will. Your new novel, Mr. Texas, your main character, Sonny Lamb, approaches politics in Texas with a certain amount of optimism, a certain amount of, I don't know, naivete. In some ways, my father and I described it as Mr. Smith goes to Washington in Texas. Although I don't mean to describe it as Pollyanna-ish because there's nothing Pollyanna-ish about the novel. But I'm interested to find out if you're an optimist about politics and if you believe somebody can enter the realm of Texas politics without that naivete, without that optimism that Sonny has. There was a, an ad, a political ad that was done for the Sonny Lamb campaign, which draped him in all the mythology of Texas, the the Alamo, the cowboy, uh, the, the director even rented a white stallion, uh, <laughs> which star quality, you know, and, and and we've had ads like that in the past in Texas. And, and here he is, you know, he's married with the Texas myth. And you see the stallion rearing up and then riding off into the sunset with a drone shot following him. That is Mr. Texas, the concoction of a political ad that has taken Sonny Lamb, a rather humble rancher out south of Marfa, and made him into this heroic object on the advertisement. Can you be involved in Texas politics, though, without that Texas mythology, without having the ad where you're cooking bacon with your gun and you're on the white stallion? Like, is that part of the Texas politics animal, as it were? It's a part of the vocabulary of Texas politics, but not everyone feels the need to engage in it. And many feel alienated by it. Essentially, that's a white Southern Texas trope. And a lot of Texans, even new Texans, you know, they come here three weeks later, they've got their pearl snap button shirts and their <laughs> press jeans. And, and really, Texas is happy to accept you, you know, that, like that Lyle's Love It song. I know you're not from Texas, but Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's the attitude. I, I, I've lived in other places and I can say it's just a whole lot easier to become a Texan than it is a Massachusetts, what would be the right word, a, a, a denizen of Massachusetts or, <laughs> or <laughs> Illinois for that matter, or any place practically 
part of the culture of Texas is it's very welcoming. And that's why a lot of people come here. But people have such strong opinions about Texas. You know, Mm. they love it or hate it, even whether they know it or not. Hmm. There's one sentence in it that I thought was particularly poignant. You say very flat out, Texas is in trouble. And you say there are good people in it. Wonderful folks. But you say it's it's sort of like a family with a bad gene. What did you mean by that? Well, politics in Texas has always been mean. It it lacks compassion. Mm. And it's a historic trait. It's not new with this administration as much as as people blame it for that. Even when Texas was all blue, which it was when I was growing up here, there was a side of Texas that was stingy and impersonal and not very caring. And that is unfortunately a trait that has persisted. I think Texas could exist in isolation by being petty and mean-spirited, but it cannot be the leader of the nation and still hang on to those qualities. So what I'm urging through the voice of my character is a state that is more pragmatic and compassionate and is willing to assume the responsibilities of leadership, which are coming its way, whether we like it or not. I'm interested because I've heard you say my goal is with my writing pragmatism and compassion. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about how you applied those two things here to Mr. Texas. Well, you know, Texas is caught up in the culture wars and uh, it's kind of proud of that. Just a, a measure of its influence, you know, Roe versus Wade began here. The woman that was Roe was a single mother in Dallas and Wade was Henry Wade, the district attorney in Dallas. And, you know, that case went all the way to Supreme Court. It adjusted the laws of abortion in the country. Similarly, the case that toppled Roe started at this public policy institute in Austin, very right wing think tank, and it became the law of the nation. So, you know, just in the terms of this election we just had, you know, abortion is a determining factor in many of the elections, and it all the pro and the con of it began here. So I think that the absence of compassion in our anti-abortion law allows people to act as vigilantes. You know, if you know somebody's getting an abortion or even traveling out of state, you can turn them in, you can you can even turn in the Uber driver who you know takes a person to the airport. And just in terms of mean spiritedness, it's hard to imagine something crueler and more divisive than that particular law. And that kind of politics is a waste of time. And, you know, we have a lot of stuff on our plate that we need to do. Education foremost. I mean, we're we're not doing a good job of educating our children. And those kinds of things are damaging our state terribly. And that's what I think my soldier in this particular battle, Sonny Lamb, is fighting against that. You write that Mr. Texas went through a lot, a lot of iterations Yeah, that it was it was a play. It was a musical. It was a podcast. You wrote songs for a podcast for for Mr. Texas. And yet, as I read it, even though you tell me it had a long history, I thought in many respects, it's very topical. Yeah. So did it change over the years and how? Oh, Charlie. Yeah, it's, it was conceived originally as a movie script back in the Ann Richards days. And my character was a Democrat. <laughs> and so was everybody in Texas, practically. You know, both the House of Representatives, uh, the state Senate and the governor's chair were all Democrats. 
but you know our politics changed over time and my story evolved as it <laughs> leapt from screenplay to play play to m- musical to uh, uh, <laughs> podcast and you know now ultimately to a novel. I went, by the way, I'm hoping that's your coda. I'm hoping that you'll sing us a song. <laughs> from the... So Sonny sort of walks in like a wide eyed babe yeah. to the Texas house. And, you know, of course, as everybody who goes into politics with wide eyes and a positive attitude, they end up compromising parts of their yeah. soul. As somebody who has had a front seat for politics, can you at this point become involved in politics and be successful in politics without selling a part of your soul? Well, one of my characters is a a young blind guy who is a game theorist. He's teaching Sonny, you know, how to play the game of politics. One of the lessons is that you have to stay in the game. And so Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to be effective, you have to find a way to stay in the game. Compromise is the essence of politics. When you have all of these people from all these different walks of life, from different races and ethnicities and income levels and you know, uh, and life experiences is solving those differences that is, you know, the key to politics. Although there's a one of the songs that you reference, you know, we've called Political Differences. And uh, it's sung by two members of the Republican Party who are trying to find common ground, one of them a black gay Republican and the other the head of the Tea Party Caucus. And my gay Republican, one of his lyrics is, is it possible for you to see that politics is just about diversity? Hmm. And the Tea Party doyen responds, politics is about holding on to what you got. And I think those are hmm. two elements in our politics, you know, they're trying to create diversity and trying to stop change. Those are the main psychological and political forces that are at play right now, not just in Texas politics, but around the country. One of your characters asks an existential question that I think every politician at some point faces in saying your position on this could cost you your career. Is it worth it? And I think every politician at some point comes to that question and how they answer it is, I think, a test of character. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, so many of our political figures are failing that test because they're afraid of making any concessions. The fear of losing what they have is their opportunity to be at the table of politics. But they're not really at the table if they're not expressing what they truly believe. And so you have, I consider them the kind of zombie figures that are in office, but they're not players. In Texas, we just call them furniture. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked to a lot of different writers, but I, I don't know that we've ever talked to one that's written a podcast, a musical, a play, fiction and nonfiction. And screenplay. And screenplay. Sorry, I didn't want to forget that. If there are any other mediums, he also writes really good (laughs) (laughs) post-its. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's 
The economy stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news stupid. It is the economy stupid. It's not the economy stupid. It's national security stupid. It's the hair stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Lawrence Wright. You type the words, the end. What is your finishing ritual? Do you have one? Uh, yeah, you know, I I put it on the calendar what time I finished. You know, this I have these little rituals. You know, if a friend passes away, like on my contact list, I have a category that says dead. <laughs> and I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I drag them into the dead category. So yeah, it's a little form of burial, you know. What percentage of Texans would you guess own a pair of cowboy boots? Oh, you know, cowboy boots are a statement. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not very good at wearing them. I have three pair. <laughs> I, 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 some boots are just beautiful, you know, and, and there's a kind of elegance about a boot that you don't get in your brogans. And um, so, and I, I, you know, I dress up in my regalia when I'm, I'm in a band and we, you know, I always have on my outfit, but for a lot of urbanites, it's a symbol of something that is retrograde or macho or something like mm-hmm. that. But I like, I like seeing people in boots. My daughter is a great dresser and she's got a bunch of boots and, you know, she wears them with the strangest outfits. And, <laughs> and you see that with Texas girls, you know, they, they <laughs> incorporate the boots ironically. And uh, so there people wear boots for different reasons. But if I live in Texas and I'm at a table of people and we're all sitting around and talking and I say, but I don't own a pair of boots. I mean, is that weird? Like, do people go, you, how long have you been in Texas and you don't own a pair of boots? Like, isn't it part of a thing? I mean, can you live in the state without the boots? <laughs> well, I don't think people would condemn you for not wearing boots, but they would understand something about you that maybe you didn't want <laughs> <laughs> to broadcast. In God Save Texas, you write about a truck stop with 120 gas pumps and 83 toilets. Yeah. Tell me you made that up. No, that's Bucky's. And uh, it's, <laughs> uh, it also has this amazing collection of Texana. You can go in there, and I'm sure this happens uh, every thousand miles or so. Somebody will, you know, 
there's Bucky's says pull over, you know, and, and they do have <laughs> wonderful bathrooms. Uh, but uh, you can also fully outfit yourself. They sell boots and buckles and uh, everything that's shaped like Texas. I, I don't know of another state that has a fixation on the shape of it. But this is, <laughs> and maybe maybe Texas is unique in having a queerly appealing shape. I, I know it's a very odd construction, isn't it? But you, you don't see people walking around with. California or the shape of Illinois. Not as much. No, not as much. <laughs> Last one. Favorite Texas moment. Of my lifetime or of, uh, mm-hmm. let me think. It can be both, by the way. It can be your lifetime and ever. <laughs> I think what comes to mind, I don't know why, but the most generous period and oddly enough, during Rick Perry's reign in the state house, when the hurricane hit New Orleans so badly and people were in such despair. Perry opened up the state to them, you know, welcomed them to, you know, help transport people. I still meet people that came to Texas during that period of time. And it just seemed like a very open-hearted gesture. Lawrence Wright, thank you very much for talking to us. And for answering our rapid fire questions. I've enjoyed it. Our conversation with Lawrence Wright and his great new novel, Mr. Texas. One of the things that I thought was most interesting that he talked about was the changes that are coming to Texas because there is this massive immigration, not just from the south of the border that we think about, but Asians coming into Texas and people who, for some reason, feel akin to the Texas politics. This is a state with a huge black immigration population and more African-Americans who are coming. Many of them are conservative. So Texas politics is changing and we don't know how because it's it's going to become more and more populous. Will it become an even handed state? Will it become more blue? It's now, of course, almost totally red. But watching Sonny Lamb get thrown into the briar patch of Texas politics makes for a very, very entertaining book. There are some wildly, wildly colorful characters that are based. You know, one of the things I think is great about Lawrence Wright's writing is he also uses some of his nonfiction. He pulls from his nonfiction. And sometimes you can see characters from real life Texas politics hidden in some of his fictional characters. And I think he has some fun with that in this book. Odell (laughs) Peoples is the heavy in the book. He is evil. He's almost, I could picture him with a twirling mustache. And yes. I and I and I won't I won't tell you because it's 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 a little scandalous. His secret pleasure, which is unveiled in the book, he he's he is evil, uh, as I say in a in a in a very amusing way. Good book, Mr. Texas. Yeah. By Lawrence Wright. We have a bookstore this week, Werner Books in Erie, Pennsylvania. Kyle Sherman. It's his store. It's on Liberty Street in Erie. Pennsylvania. It's a new owner and they have expanded, renamed the store. Warner Books, Erie, Pennsylvania, Kyle Sherman. Kyle Sherman of Warner Books and Coffee Shop uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania. I want to get those both in. You're brand new, but you're not brand new. Explain to me why. Yeah, we just opened a brand new location, just expanded just about two months ago here. I'm also somewhat brand new. I just bought Warner Books March of 2022, which has existed here in Erie for 13 years from the previous owner who was retiring. And we thought, you know, let's see if we can make this happen. And we uh, we were able to. And then... We were luckily had a very successful first year 
And then we expanded into a double the size location. You buy an old bookstore, you expand it, which is an act of faith and guts. And you have to start from scratch, both in terms of your trying to figure out the book business and putting facilities into a brand new space. That's a daunting, daunting, it seems to me, task. It was. Yeah, we I, luckily I had a lot of help. So the staff that had been at the bookstore stayed with me for one. I spent a lot of time training with Gail, who's our founder. She taught me the ropes. But then I also had a lot of help from professional groups. So NABA, which is the New Atlantic Independent Booksellers Association, their executive director, Eileen Dangler, who I have to mention because she is an amazing person and needs all the props in the world, that she was able to help me with some things and get me good resources. But then I took a booksellers class through the ABA. So I learned a lot, you know, on the ground, but also through these other organizations. And then we have a great community here in Erie. I'm in library school. I'm in graduate school, which means I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. But I'm considering potentially someday when I grow up, maybe owning an independent bookstore. But when you're interested in buying an independent bookstore, where did you find Werner Books? You didn't look at, I have a bookstore to sell and I'm desperately looking to get out of the bookbusiness.com. So how did you find yes. Werner Books? My wife and I had always talked about owning a business in, in Erie because we love our town. We love our city. And we you know, wanted it to be very community focused, You know, very community forward. And our friend Kelly, dear friend of ours, was in the store one day talking to Gail, the old owner. And she said, hey, you're young. You should buy my store. And we said... <laughs> and Kelly was like, I'm not buying your store, but she said, I might have some friends that would be interested in this. So she texted us and we have kind of a real close knit group of friends. Our other friend owns an art gallery. And we sat down, the two of us, I said, okay, you did this same thing essentially a year ago. Is this reasonable? She goes, oh, talk to the owner, see if it makes sense. So we sat down with Gail and apparently she had, you know, other people that had been interested. And, you know, she said, no, I, I see your vision you know, she said, I think you're the people to buy my store from me. I also like the idea that Gail is like soliciting people in line, like she's slipping, you know, bookmarks into people's books going, save me yeah, from the book yeah. business. You're, you're, you're in your 30s. Please buy this. That was what a lot of it was going on. <laughs> well, as, as somebody who worked in television all his life, I can tell you if somebody sat down and gave me a balance sheet to try to figure out whether this store is profitable or not, I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't have a clue. I would be totally buffaloed. So how, how did you do that? How did you figure out maybe we can make a living at this? We have a wonderful bookkeeper, first of all, who, who helps me with all that stuff. One of my employees is a retired banker. So she's great at that. You know, so she always helps me look at the money and look at... And the store had been making money. You know, we really... Because Erie is, you know, a city of 100,000 people. We only have three independent bookstores in the entire city which is kind of wild. You know, one's a, one's a mm. comic book store slash bookstore, mm -hmm. one's just new books. And ours kind of fills that hybrid role of new and used. So, you know, we were looking at it, we said, yeah, they're making money. And in the first year, we obviously made enough money to pay our loan off to then expand this into this brand new space, which so far has been wildly successful. It's been fantastic. I am in the process of downsizing and I'm sitting actually looking at 22 boxes of books that I'm going to have to get rid of. I've done this once before. I took it to a used bookseller and he said, I want this. I don't want that. I want this. I don't want that. Don't want that. Don't want that. Don't want that. How do you do that? You just know instinctively what you need and what you don't. And I got almost no money for it anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but. my staff always tease me because I have like a very strange memory for names, faces, and what books I physically have on my shelf. Can I do math? No. 
I know, okay, you know, this section's pretty full. Oh, we don't need, you know, these James Patterson. We have a great inventory too, though, so we can go through it and see what we need. For us, we love paperback fiction at our store. So as we're kind of going through, you know, you know, if you bring me in hardcover from 1995, I'm not going to want it, you know, because we don't have any space on the shelves. But we always have a good idea of kind of what we need, you know, kind of where we're at. The one thing I always tell people is if you have children's books, please bring them in. You know, uh, we, we go through children's books like crazy around here, but everything else, you know, it's more just kind of a feel, you know, you're physically in the store every day looking at your shelves. And that kind of gives you a good idea of what is missing, what holes you have, you know, where you're at. It's always tricky. You know, people bring us in boxes and we always feel bad. I'm the one of the staff that always feels bad. I'll take all the boxes. Oh, you know, all the books. Don't take all the books. We don't want all the books. We want, you know, take the, you know, be selective. So And then your staff goes, Kyle! Kyle! And it's funny because Gail did the same thing. We we are so similar, the two of us. And they always say, you know, Gail always used to do that too. And I'm just like, oh no, you know, we're, we're becoming the same person. They're like, oh yeah, we, we knew when you, when you started that you two were very much cut from the same cloth. I have been a bookseller and I know that you are about two weeks away from entering your really fun, but completely hellish mm-hmm. holiday period. So as people come in and say, I'm buying books this Christmas, what should I buy? What are you putting in uh, their hands? The one book I, I recommend to every single, almost every single person that walks in is actually a young adult graphic novel. Ooh. It's called, it's, there's a trilogy. So it's called Sheets is the first one. So Sheets, Delicates, and Lights. And it's amazing because it's our friend, our dear friend, Brenna Thumbler is the author of these. And they deal with a little girl going through grief, you know, she ends up meeting some ghosts from a ghost realm that live in her parents' laundromat and are shown as wearing sheets. And they check just all the boxes for emotional and beautiful drawings. And it's twofold. One, they're amazing books. But then the other part of it is is we're friends with the author and she's amazing. And we say, we're, we always, you know, laugh because that's one that I always say, this is the book, especially if you have a teenager um, especially if you're, you know, going through some things, she handles all those emotions really beautifully. You, I think, are the first bookstore owner to recommend a graphic novel as something that they're excited to put in customers' hands. And my dad and I sort of want to talk about these. We haven't figured out our entree yet, but graphic novels, manga, they used to be at the fringes, but they're so important and they're breaking new ground for reluctant readers everywhere. Kyle, it was so good to talk to you. You can find Warner Books at 3608 Liberty Street in Erie, Pennsylvania. And if enthusiasm will cause you to buy books, go find Kyle because his enthusiasm is infectious. <laughs> yeah, it's Werner Brooks, new and improved, but with the same old heart. I love that tagline. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, take care. Thank you so much. And congrats on the new location. Thank you both. Kyle Truman of Warner Books, either an amazing wide-eyed optimist or a business visionary. We're pushing for business visionary. That's how we see it here at the bookcase. (laughs) He sells it with enthusiasm for sure. (laughs) He sure does. So now a reminder about the folks that make this podcast possible in a coda from Lawrence Wright. I should say that Mr. Texas, the book we talked about this week, during one of its iterations was a musical. And I joked around that he could sing us a song from that musical. And he uh, did not think it was a joke. He took it seriously (laughs) and he sang us out. So stay tuned for Lawrence Wright singing us out this week. Happy Thanksgiving. 
The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. Well, you asked for it. I'll see. Um, and I don't have my piano up here, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try this a cappella. This, yes. this song uh, is sung by Big Bob Bigby, the Speaker of the House, and uh, to Sonny Lamb. And... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it expresses two sides of the state. And uh, so it begins with Big Bob. And it says, I've been round the world in my service days, been in French cafes, seen Russian plays. I ticked every one off my bucket list. There can't be too much I missed. You got your temples of Egypt, your fountains of Rome. You could fit them all in the Astrodome, but no matter wherever I roam, there's only one place I'll ever call home. Texas, you got to love her. If you need another chance, she'll always be there. When it's a friend you need, there'll be someone to care. That's why I love Texas. Texas, my home, Texas, you've got to love her. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. It's one of a kind. It's a state of mind. That's why I love Texas. It's not just my home. It's me. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.